I always knew that if it could happen there, it could happen here or somewhere else. And we've seen fascism spread through Europe recently and obviously in Central America, South America. And I believe that's what we're seeing here. Episode 35 of Inside Without Now, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. This holiday season was very different without gatherings of loved ones, as globally we surpass 80 million COVID infections and nearly 2 million deaths. In this country alone, because of this regime's criminal mismanagement, lies, and conspiracy peddling. Nearly 19 million people have been infected with COVID-19 and over 330,000 have died. 2020 will be the deadliest year in U.S. history, with deaths expected to top 3 million for the first time, due mainly to the coronavirus pandemic. Trump, Pence, the whole regime has blood on their hands. Our heart goes out to all those all around the world who lost loved ones, who have been unable to be with the sick and dying, who are struggling financially, struggling just to get food on the table. There are 25 days the Trump-Pence regime has left in the White House, and their exit cannot be soon enough. Within just the last week, armed fascists stormed the Capitol building in Oregon, protesting COVID-19 restrictions. Trump's pardon spree of corrupt politicians and political allies took place and included the pardoning of four Blackwater mercenary mass murders convicted of opening fire in Nisour Square, a crowded market in Iraq, where they killed 17 innocent people, including nine-year-old Ali Kanani. He threatened via tweet war on Iran and repeatedly asked about imposing martial law to run a new election. On Saturday, December 26th, this vengeful fascist suggested that a fictional stolen election be considered an act of war and called his violent stormtroopers into the streets again on January 6th, the day electoral votes are counted. The fight against fascism is not over. We cannot allow fascism to grow and calcify and dominate and terrorize humanity. The next 25 days until Trump and Pence are gone from power continue to present real and present danger. Our vigilance matters. So stay tuned to refusefascism.org and follow us on social media at Refuse Fascism for ways you can act on January 6th. As Andy Z, co-initiator of Refuse Fascism said in a recent forum we held, Trump not only amplified all these pre-existing oppressions and sharp divides, but normalized this unabashed, vicious racism, misogyny, and xenophobia. Trump has cohered diverse, reactionary, and fascist movements that predated his regime into a force that has now tasted power, is embedded in key institutions, especially the courts, and that lives and seethes in its own conspiracy-laden universe of victimization that will propel an aggrieved revanchism. This is a movement that is not going away. So because of this, we aren't going either. 
We are staying in the public square and in public discourse to refuse to accept a fascist America, to drive this fascism back and out from all corners of society. In today's episode, we're sharing an interview I did with Rachel Washstein, an activist who has organized Protect the Vote and Defend the Vote vigils in the northern suburbs of Chicago for several months and has been the target of vicious online attacks and in-person threats by MAGAthugs. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for joining me. I am excited to talk to you. I was in D.C., what was it now, like a week ago, I think, and a friend of mine read the statement that you wrote at it, and I said, I need to talk to this person. So I am really glad that we got to connect. Rachel, you have been holding protests regularly for months now. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why, even after the election, you decided that you needed to be in the streets and bring others out too? Yeah. Well, first of all, my streets are on the North Shore of Chicago in the suburbs. It's a very progressive town. We had a lot of Black Lives Matter activity over the summer that I was really involved with. And from there, it just kind of became obvious to me that we needed to get Trump and Pence out. So we had our vigils leading up to the election. And then after the election, when Trump was doing everything in his power and all of his cronies to hold on to power, I knew that we couldn't just stop at the election. So I was standing out there with my high school aged kid, and it was mostly middle-aged people and high school students, mostly queer high school students. And we were out there and had all these signs about no Trump coup, and people really thought we were overreacting. But I think at this point, it's pretty obvious that they did everything they could to stay in office and they're not out yet. And they're very dangerous. Can't leave them in office. We can't let that happen. You had mentioned that you live in a progressive area, that the people that came out, you say middle-aged, queer teenagers, that kind of thing. I also recall you having some harassment and resistance to the protests that you've organized. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you experienced? The first time that we experienced confrontations. It was over the summer. Highland Park was targeted by the Lake Bluff militia because we had been so active with the human rights movement over the summer. And so I guess they wanted to show us what was what, and they were planning to do a big rally downtown. Highland Park is a heavily Jewish area. Although there are Jews on both sides of the political spectrum, there was sort of an understanding that militias were not good for the people in our community. And so I think they came out in mass out of self-interest. But we had what looked like tanks rolling through Highland Park at the time with these huge flags and these flagpoles and they'd get in your face and call you a communist. And here I am, my kid and my neighbor and whoever else, and they're screaming in our face. And it was awkward because the police are the only thing that's standing between them attacking us and the attackers are holding Blue Lives Matter signs. That was sort of the beginning. And then things progressed in Deerfield. When we would hold our vigil, we started having people 
come and drive around and they would scream at the kids who had on the gay flags. They'd scream, die faggot. And every night we would count, we made it into a joke. How many faggots are they going to get called tonight? Oh, it was a two faggot. And it was the same people. And they're driving Jeeps with huge Trump flags and they're just nasty. And from there, they really zeroed in on me and a couple other adults and one of the kids. They posted terrible things online and they were really bullying and harassing the other, the high school student. And then they started doing things like calling the police on us and saying we were in the street. They would have rallies on every Saturday, I think. We would never go there. We were not at this point when we realized how confrontational they were and that they really wanted to have some crazy confrontation with Antifa. We just had no interest in being anywhere near them. But they came to us and they started reporting us to the police and the police would stop by and check in. The police were not overly friendly, even though we were out there waving and dancing. It's just, it was kind of cold, but it was respectful. And we did this for a long time. But towards the very end, about two weeks ago, the kids were driving around, kept driving around, pulled the old thing of, they said we jumped in front of their car or something. We never leave the sidewalk. We don't want to get hit by traffic. (laughs) That happened. And then everybody left the protest and they walked me to my car, some of my friends. And when they left, because I'm a slowpoke and I was putting away all the signs, I turn and there are these kids who are the same age as Kyle Rittenhouse, who are super aggressive. They're, they know my name, first name and last name. They just keep telling us that the police hate us. It wasn't a good feeling. I wasn't scared but it was not comfortable. They also that day posted our photos, our first and last name, our phone numbers, our home addresses, which is out there for people. But when you combine that with what was on the post that they called me a, a violent communist, they claimed that I tried to hit somebody with my car. What they're doing is they're putting this out there that I am illegitimate. I'm a piece of crap. I'm violent which leaves me open to people potentially attacking me. And I've got kids and I don't have time for this. (laughs) So I reported it to the police, didn't think that they could do much and they sure couldn't do much, but I asked them if they would take the report because I felt it was important in case things escalated and they did. So we had the last vigil was last weekend. They um, posted in the morning threats that they were gonna go mess with some leftists and posted the the address of the vigil. They showed up. We had reported to the police and shared the post with them, let them know. So the police were there, but the police also, they were way separated from us at first. And then the police let them get really close to us, like close enough to just disrupt everything. And it was a group of maybe three 70 year olds, couple of middle-aged people, a kid, and they're screaming just nasty things, calling me a whore, a communist, that I'm violent, that I hate the police, calling me out by name, saying that they're not going to tolerate me in this community. It was chilling. And when I left there, it was 5.30 and we're on our way to the car and the police stop us. And they say, you have to be out of here by 5.45. The park closes at dusk. And We smiled and said, yeah, we're walking to our car. And they said to me that if you're here after dusk, we would have to take action. Like, what? 
it just felt weird. And so you just have this feeling in the back of your head, like, can I go out and protest and stand up for what I believe in? And it's also like, you're the canary in the coal mine. I mean, what have we done really to deserve this kind of attention or to get a bad rep from the police? We've done nothing. We've exercised our constitutional rights, just pushing them a little bit. And you see their fascist tendencies come out. I think that's a really good point. It's incredibly chilling. And I'm sorry for what you went through and and what your family experienced. Thank you. I've been in similar position. It's it's an awful feeling. Even if you're not scared, it's an awful feeling. I think that there's that feeling of vulnerability and the lack of protection, knowing that who's going to come to your defense, you know what I mean? Like, right. And I think that that it speaks volumes, I think, to your commitment for justice that you kept doing it in spite of it. I just was wondering what compelled you to come back out all those other weekends, even as you were faced with those those threats or, or attack, what, what compelled you to do that? I think it was right that you did. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering for our listeners, a lot of people, someone says, oh, we're going to be at your protest. Their response was would be like, okay, I think I, I won't protest this week. I don't want to do that. I think that what's going on is very serious. Yes, these are essentially teenage clowns. So is Kyle Rittenhouse. Trump is an absolute buffoon, but so is Hitler. So is Mussolini. So is every fascist. When I was 16, I went on a trip with the B'nai B'rith Youth Organization, and we went to Poland and went to Auschwitz, Birkenau, Majdanek, and Treblinka. And at each of those camps, There were camps that there weren't survivors, so we didn't have survivor guides. But when we were at Auschwitz, we had people who had survived Auschwitz walk us through the camp. We spent a lot of time in what had been Jewish town. And you'd see the the Jewish stars in the wrought iron gates and things like that. But it was just disappeared. The life just didn't exist anymore. As part of that program, they asked because they pay part of your way to go but they ask you in return to come back and educate people about the Holocaust. And I took that to heart. And for 10 years through my 20s, I was going to school groups and religious groups and and giving presentations on the camps that I went to and the lessons we can all learn from history. But at the same time, I was really immersed in the history and I became very good friends with a Holocaust survivor who survived three camps with his little sister. And he was actually a neighbor of mine where I grew up in this very evangelical area in Illinois. And he had married a Catholic woman, raised five Catholic children, was my neighbor. And somehow I ended up learning that he was born a German Jew and survived multiple camps. Over the years, we became very close and I know his story inside out. And Germany was a very civilized country. It was very modern. His family had a lot of money. They had a business. They had a life that we could relate to. I always knew that if it could happen there, it could happen here or somewhere else. And we've seen fascism spread through Europe recently and obviously in Central America, South America, 
And I believe that's what we're seeing here. Were there particular lessons, and you pointed most starkly to the fact that it, it could happen here, it being fascism. Were there other lessons from your experience that you found yourself applying or advocating that other people applied to today's situation? Yes. One of the things that I worked on with my friend George was he felt that his life was saved because of the actions of a Dutch man. I spent a lot of time with him researching this man and George's story and gathering documents. And I really sort of started to envision the town and what happened as the Nazis came in and the progression, because it really happened over five years of George's young life, it was this buildup and to see choices that people had to make about do you join the Nazi party or what happens to you if you don't. And the few people that stood up in his story and one man in particular who made a huge difference. And George is just an incredible human being who now has five children and over 25 grandchildren and great-grandchildren. The thought of if I was ever in that situation, I'm going to make myself be brave enough to stand up. I'm fueled by that. So standing up to suburban fascists doesn't seem as brave as I think I would be willing to be. But it's just a commitment to truly never let fascism take hold again. I think we grew up hearing never again. And I think that most Jewish children, I, I knew what that meant. We were told that it meant for no one ever, not just our people. And I think that there's making that real. And I think that it's so important what you were talking about in terms of the need to be brave while we still can be and prevent the atrocity. And I think that there's that respite that people feel right now that we only need to get through 33 more days and we're out of the clear and I think that it means so much that it is very unlikely that he will succeed in a coup. I agree with you. I think it's, it's a very good thing that by all we won't like- have a fascist state. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. That definitely makes a difference. But I'm wondering, what do you think is left to be done? What do you see us decent people needing to do? What danger still exists? The danger that exists is there's this fascist social movement that has been emboldened by having their man in the White House. Now they know that they can they can do it. And they have a vision for our country, which excludes probably most of us, they have a very strict vision of what America should be. They consider themselves true patriot, the ultranationalism, wrapping themselves in the flag, and at the same time turning around to us, claiming that we're somehow communists and Antifa. And the idea that Antifa today that being an anti-fascist, <laughs> I mean, my grandfather fought in World War II in the Battle of the Bulge and was a proud anti-fascist. What is this? This is the stuff that is not going away when Trump leaves office. And as long as we have the Confederate monuments up and we're letting people play around with this mythic past of America was great during the Confederacy or that we need to preserve the history of the losing side of a war, which is not generally done. Those are things that are going to stick with us. Conspiracy theories about pedophile rings, even though there may be Jews in the top 
leadership as far as Kushner and all these people. But if you look, scratch the surface under the politicians, it's pure white supremacy. And that's not good for women. That's not good for the planet. That's not good for LGBTQ. That's not good for non-Christians, not good for non-whites. It's not good for a lot of people. And he's still around. He's still the leader to be worshipped if, if needed. I think the danger is is real and, and, and stark from this rabid and violent base that has only been tempered by this false victimhood, this fiction of a stolen election. So let's challenge people. Yeah. Let's challenge people who think that we're alarmist, who are saying, listen, I, I need to chill for a hot minute. Like it's been intense. They've probably been involved in BLM all summer and then all of the election. And they feel like he's finally out the door because Mitch McConnell said so. So to them, I say, if you're so confident that everything is cool, Go out there and exercise your right to protest or to freedom of speech. Stand on a corner until Trump is out of office once a week with a sign that says no Trump coup and just let it play out. That's all I'm going to say. Right now, if we push back, you're going to see the fascists come out. So we all just have to keep coming out and keep saying no and keep saying we are not who you say we are and shining a, a light on what's going on. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Inside Without Now. Subscribe for the latest and please rate and review to help us reach more listeners. I invite you all to join me for a virtual benefit concert, a rebroadcast of an extraordinary concert from January 19, 2017 at Symphony Space, New York City. That's right, the eve of Trump's inauguration this happened. Musicians Against Fascism. Join me this Wednesday, December 30th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, with music from Arturo O'Farrell, The Jazz Passengers, Matthew Shipp and William Parker, Vijay Ayer, and many more of New York City's greatest jazz innovators. Downbeat Magazine wrote of this concert, joining an international brigade to organize, fight, resist as musicians against fascism. Father and son team, Arturo and Adam O'Farrell, assembled 40 like-minded colleagues in a carefully curated, well-paced three-hour show of strength exhibiting playful pushbacks, searing flashes of pain, and warm camaraderie. You can RSVP at refusefascism.org. All are invited to watch. Donations will be requested to support refusefascism.org. You can join me at this virtual benefit concert, Musicians Against Fascism, this Wednesday, December 30th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time at refusefascism.org or refusefascism on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter. It will not be soon enough that the Trump-Pence regime is gone from the White House, and they must never be allowed to come back. But we cannot let down our guard or go to sleep. So many lives still hang in the balance. The future is unwritten, and together, we must be the ones to write it. Please give generously to this cause by clicking the donate button at refusefascism.org or via Venmo refuse-fascism. Cash App Refuse Fascism. I look forward to seeing you this Wednesday for this concert. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. Trump Pence, out now. Stay safe, not silent. And I'll see you in the streets 